I have the great privilege of talking to and learning from smart and creative and wildly interesting and inspirational people every day. And I want you to have that same experience. And so I decided to start interviewing them. And I want you to come along and listen and learn and enjoy with me. I'm your host, Phil Luce, and this is the Sample Bucket Podcast, where we learn all kinds of different things about people who own, operate, manage, and otherwise work in grain businesses. Especially in selling grain, um, I need to try to figure out what's motivating the person I'm selling to. Do they really need me now or not? Am I solving their problems? Would they rather buy from me than anybody else? And how can I be that person that they'd rather call? My guest on this episode is Rob Cogdill. Rob works at Cogdill Farm Supply, which is a family grain business in Western Iowa. And he worked there after going off to many years of school and earning a PhD and studying abroad and getting deeply involved in science. And one of the things that that has made him really good at is turning numbers into a useful and practical story, which is something that I love to do as well, Uh, not nearly on the same level as Rob. Rob and I enjoy talking to each other about spreads and fatherhood and the psychology of the grain business and just about anything else. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you will too. Rob Cogdill, thanks for talking to me today. You bet, Phil, anytime. Uh, This is not primarily a, a grain trading podcast, but Everybody I talk to is a grain trader. And so to get some of the current events on the table, you guys are right on the edge. Well, you tell me, but my perception is you're kind of on the eastern edge of a pretty bad production area for the fall of 2022. How's that looking? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, straddling the state line because on one side of our trade territory um, is pretty dismal. You know, it wasn't a complete disaster, but it if you squinted, it looked like a disaster. And then on the other side of the trade territory, it was kind of a shrug your shoulders and eh, pretty good, but not as good as last year. And the further you go to the west, the worse it got. And the further you go to the east, it's kind of the better it gets. And it's a it's a. It's an interesting position as a as a basis trader because, you know, trying hard not to look like a greedy bum next to the people bidding on the west side of me, and the people on the east are wondering, you know, what kind of screw we got loose because we're bidding so high. So. And you farm, of course, and your your business is uh, several other people in your business farm, and so apart from the the bad psychology of of a poor production year and all all that comes with that as a pure basis trader do you uh would you rather be in this environment or an environment where you don't know where to put all the grain no uh, i i prefer this environment um you know when i was around you know more experienced basis traders a few years back um I think we talked about this up in Michigan, you know, I was told a long time ago that the slightly short years are going to be your best years. And then when we had one, um, well, we had already had one by then and I didn't understand why it was so good. And then when we had another one in the last couple of years, I, I understand it now. Um, we, and, and in this year, we're in the business of getting paid for having it. 
And mm-hmm. if everybody has it, we're not special. You know? and, and so as long as I have something and I'm good at finding more, in the years like this, we're going to get paid a premium. And so, you know, I'm not out uh, trying to hold down a tarp on a corn pile this year. That's fine. Yeah. In the Eastern Corn Belt, finally, after a lot of years of people paying way too much for abundant crops, it seemed like this year, uh, it depends where you were, but a lot of places in the Eastern Corn Belt had quite large crops. And thanks to that and the price level, we're buying some of the lowest bases that any of them had seen in several years, which is fantastic. If you can buy a huge crop at a low basis, and that's that's a good thing. But I've, based on your earlier comments, that's not what you did. You're not buying the lowest basis you can remember in a year like this. No, no. Uh, I will say, thankfully, we we had a decent bit bought before harvest at a fair basis, and um, you know we've been walking the numbers up. And they just got considerably firmer than I expected. Um, you know, I and and in a year like this, the market uh, you you may or may not get paid more for holding for a while, but you know you will get punished for holding too long. Yeah. So you know we got to try to move a lot. We got to have we have to sell a lot. Well, what happens is is when you have as many logistics to operate as we do. You don't just sell on Tuesday for what needs to move Wednesday. You know, I sell in November, you know, stuff that's got to move in, you know, December, January, February. Huh. Well, when the best bid is for the next five days and you've already got everything laid out and sold, it's it's hard to deal with that. But it is what it is. You know why they're doing it. Yeah. Once we can get to a place where we're, you know, flat or, or short, um, I can be more nimble and light on my feet. You know, but I, I didn't see any reason to be long the basis in a huge way when I could be selling it at uh, the highest over that I've ever sold versus the Ds. Is it... You know that because you've you've traded all kinds of different markets before, but is there any part of you that still, any little voice in the back of your head that says <clears throat> getting short the basis in a, in a market that has a severe crop failure is crazy? <laughs> I shouldn't do that, or, or is that, that voice gone now? Um, well, it's, it's, it's an issue of, you know, timing. Uh, would it have been crazy to be short at harvest well yeah because you know that it's going to get higher after harvest um but uh to get short right now i i have all this experience and it's a matter of degrees so the way i like to put it is i kind of want to be short by by the end of december but i'm not going to get so short that i'm unlikely to cover it before March or April, you know, it's, it's not going to be a world beating short. Well, then I might get long again for a little while, um, or to go sideways. And then there's going to come a point in the summer where I'll get so short the basis that I can't, that I don't expect, and I don't even want to cover it till the next harvest. Well, that gets weird. The only, the <laughs> only moment that gets really, 
the only moment that gets really scary is when you know you're having to make sales because uh, you own corn that you have not yet received and you're shorting DP and you start to have to you know, you, you are finally relying other on other people to follow through and uh, yeah that maybe gets a little scary yeah I'm not going to get out of control makes sense so you talked about the, the logistics that you have to deal with let's briefly uh, tell us about your business you guys have several locations full service agriculture business yeah we um, yeah, we cover six locations in western Iowa and you know we, we really I feel we've bucked the trends um, first off small independent family owned businesses like us are supposed to be dying uh, and, and we're not um, but then the other is uh, in in Iowa in particular, and I think you can make a distinction between Iowa and a lot of other states, we're just dominated by a small cabal of huge co-ops. And the, what they do is they buy up a lot of little locations, close them, and then put up one location. And, and, and it gets to where um, they dominate the trade, but their locations are 30 and 40 miles apart. Um, we kind of went the opposite. I mean, we've we already had three locations when I got into the business, but we've added as a couple more dinosaurs went down, we bought them out, and they're only 10, 15 miles away. And um, if we trade right and we treat our customers well, uh, it's worth it being that close together uh, because we you know we can do a good job of originating. So. Uh, yeah, we've got six locations, and um, you know, I don't know. I think we're last year we were probably around 20 million bushels handled, and then we also do fertilizer and chemicals and seed and feed and sell propane and gates and stuff. How's the gate business? <laughs> Pain in the butt. We we. Uh, <laughs> It's so hard to get gates right now, yeah. you know, they, because everything takes time. And, and, and then, you know, as a matter of policy, we don't like to sell cheap gates. But you always get everybody trying to – this is actually – it's just like the grain business. You try to give white glove service, and everybody thinks you need to bid like the place that gives no service. Mm -hmm. Well, we like to carry the best quality gates higher quality steel, more of the steel, more weld length, blah, 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 better cap powder coating. But then they all want to compare you against the gate getting sold by the chain store that, you know, and say, well, theirs is just cheap. And I'm like, well, go buy that one. Why are you here? You know? Does that work? I, I guess I'm a little bit, <laughs> you know, in the grain business, I, I get really sensitive to uh, being competitive with my bid because I always worry, and I've found I've relaxed a little bit, but I used to worry that if we weren't competitive every single minute, maximally competitive, that people would leave and just never come back. Um, and I've learned to get along with that. But with Gates, it's the opposite. If someone's going to rake me over the coals because our high quality, say, you know, we sell Sue Gates uh, and they're the best. If, if someone's going to rake us over the coals because, you know, some craptastic 
you know, gate is cheaper, I don't worry about losing that customer. I'm just worried about losing the time that it took to tell them, you know, hey, this is a better gate, you know. Just don't come back and talk with me about it again. If you're going to come back, just buy a damn gate. Yeah, the people that want to hassle us about those gates, by and large, are not the customers who know us on a first name basis. So I don't no. worry about it. I don't. Uh, I've never talked to anyone in the gate business before, so I hope you'll indulge me just a little bit more. What kind of volume of gates do you move in a year? We're not huge. Um, it probably, I don't know, three or four semi loads. Um, there, there's people that probably go through a bunch more than that. Um, uh, the, the gate business has been Uncle Sam's baby. What he does is he carries Sue Gates and he offers them at ridiculously low margin. And then we get free advertising from Sue Steele. And so we'll have people coming from three or four counties over to get gates from us. Hmm. Um, but, you know, you never know. Those people might become a feed customer. They might buy some chemical or whatever. And they're usually happy because they know what they're looking for. They want the top quality Sioux gate, and we're beating the pants off everybody else around. And, you know, I don't know. I guess it's our charity work. But we don't sell them at a loss. We could probably make a little more on them. But it's, it, we like selling a top quality gate, and uh, people are sure happy when they know what they're getting. Who's buying gates? Are, are are these replacements for gates that have worn out, or are they are they putting up new, uh, new pasture fences and so um, on that need gates? Or who, who's a gate customer? Uh, it's so it's a little bit of both. Uh, occasionally, people will come in because, you know, gates. You know, bulls will ram into gates mm-hmm. and destroy them. Or you know, they it, now Sioux Steel gates take a lifetime to rot apart. That's why they actually have a lifetime warranty. So we very, very rarely are replacing a gate because out in pasture it's, you know, falling apart. Usually it's somebody is replacing a gate, some cheaper gate that rotted apart. Usually they're replacing a some cheaper gate or um, they're converting something to pasture or they're widening an entrance. You know, we, I remember back around 2010, 11, 12, we sold a lot of field gates uh, because people had to widen their driveways for bigger combines. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's gone away. See, there's, there, we basically sell two types, two strengths of gates. There's um, livestock gates and there's field gates. And field gates will still hold livestock, but they're not intended to be like a feedlot gate or a gate that has pressure, a lot of livestock pressure. And so, you know, uh, People would buy these 16 and 18 foot field gates and they put two of them together so you can fit a monstrous combine through. Um, during the, the years where commodity prices were pretty soft, we didn't sell much anything for gates. We, you know, a little replacement here and there. And that also includes, you know, bale rings and stuff. And then um, recently, as farmers have had some money, um, you know, let's say a farmer buys a, some land. Well, first thing they might want to do is they'll put a fence in um, because a fence is a multi-decade investment and maybe they'll pasture cattle on it or something like that. And you could depreciate the fence, uh, but it's still an asset. And so there's some tax advantages as long as you wanted a fence. So those people will need gates and 
I don't know. It's it's one of these deals where if someone asks me, hey, do you want to get in the gate business? I'm like, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> but once you're in it, you, you, it's shocking how stable the flow is. I have never thought about the gate business before today, but I'm glad we talked about it. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> What's really fun is, uh, you know, the, being in the gate business has diversified us into the creosote post business mm, yep. and diversified us into the cattle panel business um, or corral panel business. And, you know, just one thing leads to another. You've got uh, six locations. You're involved in a whole bunch of different parts of ag business, obviously grain and feed and agronomy and, and also gates and propane. Uh, how many employees does that take? Um, I think we're around 45 or 50. Um, I feel terrible when I don't know the number of employees, but I can assure you I know every one of them by name. I know every one of them on a first-name basis. I just lose track of how many there are. Well, I, I don't know if this will help you feel any better or not, but I never say the right number. <laughs> We're not a large company here, and I for sure know every single person. And uh, when people say, how many people work at White Commercial? I, I always, you know, I throw out 25, and I know 25 is not right. It's close. But yeah. anyway, I think yeah. there's a difference between knowing the team and, and knowing the number, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're 45 or 50, depending on the time of year. And how many of those are family members? Seven at the moment. There's the original three brothers, and then my cousin Sean and I joined two sons, and then we, we've hired two of my cousins in the last few years. And those are those cousins related to the original three brothers, or they're from other uh, other nope. siblings? Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're they're from other siblings. Um, uh, you know, hiring family is it's different. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Uh, you live, I think, very close to the town you grew up in, which is the I think the town your elevator's in, or at least they're all. The town you live in is real close to the town that the home elevator's in, uh, but you were gone for a while. So what, what's the, in in broad strokes, what was your path from Western Iowa uh, to wherever you ended up and then back to Western Iowa again? Okay, well, when when I talk to like high school groups and things like that, and they ask me by background, I preface by saying around here, when you grew up in the 80s, it was the farm crisis. And you were taught that there was no good future for a smart kid on the farm and you needed to go be something. And for me, that's something that I was encouraged to be was an engineer. So I you know, first found my way to Iowa State and I thought I wanted to design tractors. And I ended up being an ag and biosystems engineer doing spectroscopy. Sorry, it's been a while since I've used those terms. Um, and that led me through my master's degree in ag engineering at Iowa State. And then I um, thought it'd be neat to see if a farm kid could get a PhD in pharmaceutical science, because that's where the money was going, what I did. And so I went to Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And um, from there, I was a consultant in the pharmaceutical industry just long enough to figure out that I really, really enjoy being around farmers 
considerably more than I enjoy being around anybody in the pharmaceutical industry. And um, found my our way back home. I, I did a couple of year stint at the University of Nebraska and uh, in the College of Engineering in the dean's office as the director of research development, uh, a little bit like a cat herder. And then uh, it was during that time that I came home and visited our family business in the fall of 09 and, you know, felt in my heart that, you know, I was missing from it and that it could be more than it was. Uh, we had tons of customers trying to do business with us and, uh, you know, insufficient, dilapidated facilities, but yet people were lining up to be there, and it just seemed like an opportunity. And then uh, I found this big, thick book called The Art of Grain Merchandising, and I thought it would teach me how to speculate and corner the market, and uh, taught me something better. Your wife's a local as well. Did, did you guys start your relationship there in the, in the hometown and she followed you around or how did that is just a lucky coincidence or what happened there? Uh, thankfully she didn't know me until I was in my early twenties <laughs> because if she would have known me even a minute earlier. She would have realized what a monstrous dweeb I am <laughs> and I'd have never bagged her. Um, but uh, she met me in a moment, a brief moment of coolness and uh, I managed to uh, lock her down, and and now she understands what a dweeb I am. But uh, you know, we we grew up ten miles apart, and uh, presumably they knew of our business because our trucks were always on the road going past their town. Maybe she was aware, maybe she wasn't. But I knew of her family because they had uh, a U-Pick strawberry farm right next to the highway. Probably seen her in the fields. Chances are, I was like, "Who's that?" But uh, so I knew about their family, but I didn't really know about her. And uh, uh, you know, when you grow up in Western Iowa, the, you know the town ten miles over is trash. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and your town is the shining city on the hill. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, when you get a hundred or so miles away, you look back, and yeah, they're the same. Um, so we, I met her while I was in grad school because my roommate, um, was dating one of her friends, one of her good friends from high school and they ended up getting married and they, they paired us up because they they thought we'd be a good fit and they were right. This was in Pittsburgh? Um, no, in Ames when, when I was in, still in grad school at Ames. Okay. And, uh, no, I, I drug her out to Pittsburgh (laughs) Um, against her will. Um, when she got there, she was appalled at what a dirty, broke-down old city it was and why did I take her so there so far away from her family? And then when we left Pittsburgh, you know, right, because, man, we had, it was it was great what we had in Pittsburgh, but the deal was we didn't have our family. Mm-hmm. We, we, were hit, we were starting to grow our family and, you know, driving... Uh, driving my parents back to the airport after they came out to see our daughter when she was born, our firstborn. Uh, it was in, I think it was in March. It took them a couple of weeks to be able to get there because um, things were busy here. And taking them home, my dad said, well, we'll try to get out here one more time before fertilizer bites. But if we don't, 
I probably can't get here till August. Mm. And uh, I started, I started doing the math, and I thought, my kids are going to see their grandparents two, three times a year. Do that. Yeah. So, you know, and and my wife's parents are, you know, they were elderly anyway. Um, you know, my wife's dad is. 91 no 92 now and so you know he was already uh in his mid 70s at that point and you know so if i was only going to see my parents a few times a year she presumably would see them less and my grand you know my kids might never know her parents and didn't feel right yeah i think um that's a hard that's one of those things that you don't um, you don't appreciate enough when you have easy access to it, even though you know you should. I've lived, except for a six-month window when I was 18 years old and they moved away, I moved back to Ohio and I did not. I stayed here. I lived in the same town as my parents my whole life until that six months. And then uh, on December 30th of 2021, they moved about four hours away from here. And I know for sure that I did not appreciate having them that close for so long. Cause I, uh, I think about how far away they are now all the time. So I mm-hmm. guess that's, that's, uh, one of those things it's easy not to appreciate when you have it. And, and, uh, obviously yeah. in your case, not having it made you appreciate it pretty, pretty intensely. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, for me, uh, I, I don't think there is a dollar amount. You know, the only way I'd be willing to, you know, live so far away from family is I'd have to be paid so much that I could fly home every weekend. Well, I'm not really that valuable at anything, so we just had to move home. Was there uh, was it hard for you to just come back to the family business? And by that I mean, was there an obvious place for you to slide into, or did you have to? pitch yourself to the family or what was that process like? Well, um, you know, they were, because they're also family oriented people and they wanted to see this business go to another generation. Hmm. Um, they were a mix of worried of that. They didn't want to ruin our lives if it didn't work out. I don't think any of them were really worried about losing any money on the deal, but I think they were worried that they would come in and, you know, it would, wouldn't work out and our wives would leave us and stuff like that. Um, and, but also, uh, they, they all were looking for, you know, they needed somebody to be able to transition themselves to, um, uh, a slower pace. You know, uh, my, my uncle Sam was terribly divided between, you know, all the things he had to manage. And I truly think he was pretty pleased to not have to trade the grain anymore, which is, they were a back-to-back elevator. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, as near as I can tell, it's water torture. And, and so, you know, he, on the day I started work, he just basically stood aside and let me do my thing. And, you know, outside of one year, that's been a pretty good arrangement. So, um, uh, and in, in the case of Sean, um, there was um, definitely a spot for him in feed and seed sales, 
and it was a place he wanted to be. So, yeah, that worked out pretty good. I, I think they were just, you know, financially worried that because they were in the midst of being told that businesses like theirs didn't, you know, and, and you know, it's easy to look back and say, well, obviously it was going to work great. But I'd say that first year there were moments when they had to wonder. I guess they were affected by the same culture that you were from the 80s, which is that it's, you know, they, they in a sense, the family sent you away and you found a, you found a spot away and coming back was pretty out of the, pretty out of the norm. But it seems like it's worked out okay. Well, if we can, um, I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot <clears throat> with regard to you, you took a pretty pretty intense path through academia, obviously getting a doctorate and w- working in research, a couple different places. And and uh, we don't have to dig in real deep to this because I probably won't understand most of most of what you say about it anyway. But I th- I think it's fair to say about me that I that I come from a culture both in my personal life and my professional life where academia is a little bit of a slur. You know, that, that in other words, a- academia is this, this group of people who, who uh, live in a theoretical world and, and don't know how to tie their own shoes or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it how, as well as I want to, but there, there's a sense that academia uh, is, is this, is this, useless thing that's happening somewhere else and the practical work's getting done over here in the practical place. And I, I think I've expanded my own understanding of the world in my own mind enough to, to have taken on a, a more, uh, a more realistic and, and a more fair view of academia. But I'm curious if you can make the case again, this, this can be pretty broad, but I'm curious if you can make the case for the benefit of academia to the world at large? Well, uh, you know, they got to think about that one for a second. Um, first off, there, there is definitely a need in many careers for training well beyond uh, high school education. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it need to be a university? Take engineering or medicine or etc. Well, it takes a long time to teach that. And so by default, you know, if you're going to have doctors and engineers and, and attorneys and etc., you, you have to have training in that regard. Mm-hmm. So let's separate out the the required training in order to do really difficult stuff pretty obvious you gotta have mm-hmm. that yep yep okay well then then what's left well what's left is uh teaching you know the liberal arts education the, the humanities and um i think that the the utility of that is uh largely dependent on um who is taking it up? I think a lot of it is wasted on students who don't want to be there and aren't going to listen to it, uh, but it, because it's required. But I do think our society needs to have people who care about the humanities and philosophy and um, 
they, our society needs to have people who care about those questions that that are always posed to us. And who who teaches people to think that way? Who who teaches people to reflect on history and try to learn from it or try to cultivate the arts? And so I, I think a tremendous you know, we got to have it. You can make a tremendous argument that there has that function has to exist. And um, if we don't have it, our society turns into something much darker that um, isn't going to have the creative leaps. You know, um, I think you can look probably at China, for example, that if your university is 100% training and and no uh, philosophy. Well, what you get is you don't you don't get the sparks, you know you don't get the quantum leaps. You, you get a bunch of incremental, and sometimes incre- you can incrementally work your your way to a wall, and you need that quantum leap to jump over it. So, you know, yeah, we we got to have it. But does academia live in a bubble? You bet your bippy, they do. Um, I mean. Uh, I, I work with some tremendous people in academia, and they definitely knew how to get problems solved, and they were the problems that were right in front of them. But by and large, you put them into the maelstrom of the day-to-day of running a business um, like this or a lot of the other things we do, and they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't get along. They would you know, but that's okay. That that's not what we need them for. You a- you answered uh, both questions. I was I, I was going to ask you to to defend it first of all, and then tell me what's wrong with it. And and I think you you did both. You, you briefly addressed there are a lot of things could be said, and we don't need to spend time on that necessarily. But of course, there is well, some some the bubble you talked about is a real thing in certain cases, and and there are there are ways in which uh, people who only think about things you, all the time can get off in the left field, so to speak. The biggest problem in academia is government. Hmm. Um, I mean, the, 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 we, we've got a real problem uh, in, in, in that essentially um, there, there's, no, there's, no, there's no mechanism to check inflation on the cost of uh, you know, college education and professors and things. So I will say that when I was at the university, wow, you know, I feel like I was probably overpaid for what I was doing, but I was only making a freckle of what a lot of those folks were doing. And yeah, they were living the dream. So I, you know, I think that if, if uh, there wasn't the student loan system, the way it exists, um, it would def- I think academia, you know, the university system is largely, you know, it's it's in two bubbles. It's in the bubble where they, you know, have a certain divorce from the, you know, the daily life. You know, they they live in, at their own pace. But then it's a financial bubble. I mean, really, if if we get to a point, you know, the university system either just needs to go fully socialist which Lord knows what bad things happen then, or there's going to be a reckoning at some point, I have to believe. And uh, the, the current statistics on uptake of university education by the Zoomers 
you know, them, those younger generations, um, it's, it's looking a little bit flaky for universities because they're saying, well, I don't need that. It's different bone. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, the, the concept of thinking about things deeply developed outside of a formal school system. I wonder if it's conceivable that, that, that function could still exist outside of a formal school system seems like it's possible if, if people as long as people like thinking about things and comparing their thoughts to other people's thoughts and having healthy debate maybe society can have that function without having it codified inside of a university system i i think you hit the nail on the head you know i i think that the generations were when, when i was a kid if you weren't going to college you were a nobody um you know Go scoop something or put something yeah. in a bag and hand it to somebody for a living for the rest of your life. And don't worry about thinking because you didn't go to a college and you're a nobody. Uh, kids these days, no. They, they, you know, A lot of them might want to go to college because their parents talk about how fun it was and they see how fun it was. And that's fine. I, don't know, I really don't actually have a problem with that if they're paying their way. But I think a lot of them say, well, does the job I want require it? And if it doesn't, nope, not going. I'll go to a trade school. And, and, and when I was a kid, you didn't go to a trade school unless you couldn't get into college. Now I've, I see a lot of kids who could easily make it into a good state school. No, don't need that. So there, there's hope. What, what have you taken from your time in the research world that's of benefit to you in what you do now? The, uh, the ability to use data make decisions uh, i think i think i've always been a problem solver because uh, it's just how i'm wired but um, probably the the most important things i learned were how to handle large sets of numbers um, and gather information from them in a structured way uh, also my engineering background you know makes it easy to understand how derivatives work. You know, hmm. um, I'm not saying I've got the Black-Scholes formula memorized or any of that. And I forget what the Greeks do, but, <laughs> but, but understanding how an option works is a piece of cake and understanding why the price does what. I mean, so an engineering education helps you to break down complex problems into simpler things and then use data. So that's, that's, that's by and large, most of it. And then the other one is, you know, I went to lots of parties and met lots of people and got good at making friends. <laughs> As I mentioned before, I was a total dweeb in high school and I made a mission that I was going to make all the friends I possibly could in college. And I got fairly good at that. That is a, a profoundly useful skill, at, at least I, I assume in other businesses too, but in our business, uh, I'm impressed over and over again at the commonality between people who are successful in this business and their ability to make friends. And it's, it doesn't really center itself, kind of to your point, it doesn't center itself on personality type. There are people who are by every indicator, quiet, introverted people who would just soon sit by themselves as do anything else. But they've, I guess I don't know, in your case, it was a, a conscious choice, but 
something that I have just seen in, in dealing with people in the grain business over the years is that the people who are good at it tend to be very good at building relationships, despite whatever their natural tendency might be. I, I'd agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think in, in my case, I, especially in selling grain, um, I need to try to figure out what's motivating the person I'm selling to. You know, do they really need me now or not? Am I solving their problems? Would they rather buy from me than anybody else? And how can I be that person that they'd rather call? And uh, to, to go at it with, I'm going to become their best friend so I can make lots of money off them. Well, that really doesn't work. Yeah. What, what works is actually caring about their business and their objectives and what they're going through and maybe their state of mind and why they need your help. And doing that for a really long time, and then it gets pretty easy. You know, uh, if I if I sell a bunch of grain to a certain grain company and they raise their basis a little higher than I sell, and, you know, I might feel like a you know, uh, might feel like I made a mistake, but at them because I know what they're tr I know the problem they're trying to solve. So I come back and say, well. How can I solve your problem a little more, you know, and, and then dealing with customers on, you know, that, that sell to me, well, the farmers. I mean, if I've got somebody that's, you know, growling that I should be, you know, paying more because someone so far away is paying more, I just have to figure out how to solve the problem they have in a way that makes them want me to solve the problem. I've been doing some reading and listening uh, to different sources lately about the idea of empathy and when i started i understood empathy just to mean uh feeling how some understanding how somebody else feels or, or having gone through a similar thing to what the other person's going through but uh, what you just said reminded me of of something i've heard recently about empathy being trying hard to understand what the other person thinks and how they feel and why they're doing what they're doing and it has nothing to do with how you feel about it you you can agree or disagree you could be 100 percent on board you could be violently opposed this this came from a a guy who used to do terrorist hostage negotiations and that kind of thing so his job he said was to understand what the kidnapper wanted what the kidnapper was thinking and be able to express to that individual or that group here's what you're thinking and i understand it and Obviously, in all, well, if not all cases, certainly the vast majority, he was diametrically opposed to everything that they thought and wanted and stood for, but he found it very important to understand it clearly and be able to express it back to them, which is kind of what you're saying right there with buyers. You, you, you and the buyer may be at cross purposes. You may not be too. You don't, you don't have to be opposed, but understanding why they do the things and think the things and, and take the actions they take is hugely important. Well, I, I was going to say that actually I was thinking about, you know, talking about empathy, but I wasn't sure how to explain it. Uh, how did I do? Did, but okay. Really good. Really, really good. Uh, I, uh, I'm either pathetic or empathetic. I'm one or the other. <laughs> but I feel, I feel like if I have a superpower, it's, you know, it's, I feel like I'm fairly good at uh, getting along with people and figure out what the heck, you know. 
I, I find myself as a mayor of the town next door, the one I used to think was trash. And, you know, I find myself butting heads with people all the time uh, and have to figure out how to, you know, diffuse that and remain productive in the relationship. And, yep, it's empathy. That's good. Uh, a little while ago, you mentioned people going to college for fun. And uh, I didn't go, at least not in, not in a very traditional sense, and we don't need to talk about that now, but I, I took sort of a, not sort of, I took an unusual path through college. But anyhow, uh, my daughter's there now, and she seems to be having quite a bit of fun and also working hard. But along the lines of fun at college, as far as I know, you are the only former college cheerleader that I know. So what's that all about? <laughs> well... Uh, so let me just explain how that sort of thing happens. Yeah. In my case, um, my sister was a cheerleader at the college I first went to. I started out at a little two-year school, a little Catholic college called Briarcliff. And she was a cheerleader, and she said, hey, the rest of us girls would like some guys who could lift us in to make pyramids and things like that. Mm -hmm. You do that? And I was like, No. Like, the other girls are really pretty and nice. <laughs> and I was like, fine, fine, I'll do it, you know. And, you know, and they had uniforms made, and we got to wear pants there, mm -hmm. which was nice, because I, I was going to wear them little shorts. Uh, so that was okay, you know. And we, we learned a few things. Well, my cousin Jason, who's like a brother to me, came to visit me in college and he saw that and he apparently thought it was pretty cool. And I don't know if he went back home to high school and was a cheerleader in high school and he maybe, maybe wasn't, but he went to Iowa state, um, the year I started there. And he's like, dude, let's join the cheer squad. I'm like, no, you're not. Um, he went and joined the cheer squad his first week there. And, um, he's like, man, you have to join with me. Come on, you gotta go. And he drug me there, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, um, everyone's always like, oh, did you enjoy touching girls' butts? Well, no. It's it's a lot different when it's all of their weight on your arm. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's not the same, you know? Yeah. And uh, really, there was, oh, I don't know, eight, ten guys on the squad. And it was just a bunch of meatheads like me that, you know, we enjoyed drinking beer and being loud, lifting weights, and, you know, wanted to see, okay, hey, can I can I do this move where the girl is uh, standing on my hand, on just one hand, and I'm holding her up in the air, so she's standing up there? That's called an awesome. Well, that's a lot harder than the moves lesser than it. And then it's, okay, what if she's standing on one foot on my hands? And then she can lift her other leg up and hold it in the air because it takes a lot more balance on both yeah. people's part. I wonder sure. if I could do that. And then it's, well, I wonder if from the ground I can throw her so far up in the air that I can just catch her feet and up there. So there's all these feats of strength that you just, you know, it, it becomes, can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? And then it's fun to go to the, to the games and, and stuff. 
And, and while you're at college, you know, when I left college, all the people who weren't there were like, you're a cheerleader, that's weird. But while you're there, <laughs> people are like, dude, I saw you at the game, that was awesome, you know. So it's, 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 it's different, you know. And we just, we had a good time. It was, it was like a fraternity of guys that had a, you know, really strange hobby. And, <laughs> um, I don't know. Really, I, pr- pretty I impressive hobby. Yeah, and, and people are always like, oh, did you date the girls? No, the girls, by and large, wanted nothing to do with us because we were all, we, we were just not very cool guys. <laughs> the cool guys were playing football, <laughs> playing basketball, or or something cooler than that. We were the guys that this was our sport because we weren't good enough to do all the other sports uh, or not coordinated enough, maybe. I don't know. And so, you know, there was a subset of the cheerleaders that they they were really fun, nice girls. And, you know, there's even smaller subset of them that I have any idea where they are now. But um, by and large, they were, you know, none of the guys, well, there's maybe one guy that ever dated one of the girls. And that always looked like a constant train wreck. So the rest of us guys, <laughs> they were basically our sisters, you know. Yeah, yeah. Context is important, and really, when you're engaged in feats of athleticism with someone, that's a different thing than going on a date with someone. Uh, Yeah, it's it's way different. Yep. Uh, One thing I'll say there is, you know, clearly there's a weight limit, uh, but in the end, it really wasn't about what you know if the girl weighed less or not. It's how she had to be strong. Mm-hmm. and able to jump and then have good balance. Um, you know, I know I, uh, you know, the girl who was my partner for multiple years, she wasn't the lightest at all, but she, she was really strong and she could hold herself super stiff. And uh, she trusted me even after I made mistakes. And, um, you know, you worked your way up to those things. I do have shoulder arthritis to show oh. for it. I'm sure. I don't know anybody who even lifts weights that doesn't have a shoulder problem, let alone lift other human beings. Uh, the, the other day, we we talked briefly about you living in France, I think for a year, but you tell me if I'm wrong. Well, how did that come about? Uh, so when I was in my master's degree, um, I worked in the grain quality lab at Iowa State. Uh, working for Charlie Herberg, and I worked with a technology called near-infrared spectroscopy. Uh, Particularly, I worked on near-infrared spectroscopic imaging, but, um, and along with that was a a form of multivariate statistics called chemometrics. It was the the analysis of highly multivariate data from instrumentation to solve chemistry problems or physical problems. You know. So what we were doing was using optical data to measure, well, a, 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 a wheat protein analyzer that sits on a desk. Mm-hmm. That is a near-infrared spectrometer, right? Okay. Well, the lab I was in, uh, that professor had found uh, a lot of good luck having graduate students and postdoctoral students from France. It, you know, by and large, a lot of labs would hire Chinese students they were plentiful and and to this his credit the professor i worked for he 
saw the writing on the wall, and he felt that it was academic suicide for our country to be so, become so reliant on Chinese students. He didn't have any antipathy personally towards individual students, but mm. you know, he mistrusted the government. And what he found was French students, by and large, were the best at math. And that makes a lot of sense if you look at the history of math in general. Um, you know, everyone thinks engineers, they think of Germany. But if you, you know, want to think actually of well, problem solving and math, actually, I think, yeah, he's right. And and so he always had this train of French students. And, well, I don't know how it came about, but um, one of the postdocs, um, their lab uh, needed a, you know, a worker for some summer. And um, I said, yeah, I want to go. That'd be awesome. And so I went to the lab in Montpellier, France, which is down on the uh, uh, Mediterranean. And I stayed there for the summer and, you know, did some fiddle-faddle stuff in their lab. I think I, I helped write a, um, a review article and, um, you know, did some, did some pretty basic stuff, the sort of stuff that a master's degree person does. I didn't, you know, solve any major problems, but, you know, did some scientific tasks. And then, um, so that was just a few months. And then a few years later, when I was finished with my master's degree, but not really knowing what in the heck I wanted to do with my life, I thought, hey, I wonder if I could get a Fulbright. Because I always heard of Fulbrights, and just the name Fulbright sounds like, oh, those people got to be bright. <laughs> and I really wanted to go back to France uh, because I enjoyed it a lot. I really, really loved it there. And so I applied for a Fulbright. And uh, I applied for it before I met my wife. And then uh, I found out I got the Fulbright shortly after I met her. Um, but at that point, I didn't know she was going to be my wife, right? Um, and so I went back to France. And, you know, I got to say, the first time I was there, it was a lot of fun because I had no attachments to anybody anywhere. And I was just, you know, I was like Jack Kerouac. I was just going wherever, you know, living the dream and didn't really, you know, I went everywhere. Well, the second time around, I was kind of homesick uh, for Janelle. And, uh, but, but I, I did a Fulbright. And so if you add the two together, it adds up to a year. And I, I did some, some actual research while I was there during my Fulbright. Most of it was introducing that lab to a data analysis. Uh, it was a, People talk about AI right now, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Well, back then there were neural networks. There were what were called like, you know, Bayesian networks and radial basis function networks and things like that. Well, there was a new technique called support vector machines. And people from my background, you know, didn't know how to use support vector machines to try to solve the problems we were working on. And, and the deal was, support vector machines were primarily promulgated by computer scientists. And I swear they have a class for computer science, science graduate students called obfuscation. <laughs> obfuscation 101. Because, you know, uh, I, I read enough about support vector machines that I was like, hey, this looks like a really practical way and made more sense than neural networks. It's hard to explain, but when you train an AI or a neural network, you can train it a million times and you'll get a million different results. Mm -hmm. 
the more you train it, the more you'll converge to a single result, but you'll never get a single result. But with a support vector machine, you get the same result every time. And and so that to me was, and it, I don't know, compare that to marketing. Neural networks are accumulators. <laughs> S, support vector machines are averaging contracts. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, or target orders. And I spent a lot of that summer trying to find out how to use support vector machines, how the math worked. And then what I did, I wrote um, a journal article that I don't think I published it that summer, but I published it. Actually, I didn't think I published it. that. I submitted it for publication that summer. What I did is I wrote an article in the vernacular that was germane to our corner of science and engineering. Um, that explained support vector machines. And I showed, I basically said, here is what this is most similar to in, you know, chemometrics. This is, you know, and, and, and tried to make familiar ties. And what that did is it opened up support vector machines to that lab, and it opened up support vector machines to a whole new set of people who previously had never used it before because they could never figure out how the hell to use it. And, and it turns out that, you know, they were really not all that difficult. Um, they've got some computational problems. And um, so, yeah, I, I've never really gone back and looked at the statistics, but about every two or three days, I get this spam email from this um, academic something or other that tells me another person has cited my paper. Really? That's uh, fun. And I, yeah. And, and I've, I don't know how many papers I wrote before I finished my graduate school, but it was a, it was a fair bit. I, you know, I'd, I'd say that I probably could have made professor somewhere, but, but that one paper in particular, I'm, I'm, I haven't read it again, I guess, but uh, to me, that was, uh, it maybe wasn't my piece de resistance through grad school, but it, it, it was pretty close. Being able to, to get, concrete feedback from something that you've put out into the world is really is really encouraging and affirming i uh, nowhere near on the level of of uh, rigor or anything that that you're talking about but of course i put out a metric ton of thoughts into the ether all the time <laughs> and most of the time i put them out there i believe in them i hope they help someone and i'll never know never you, you know you don't no, nobody cites that and nobody should. I'm not saying they should, but every once in a while, somebody will say, hey, I read that email from the other day and, and I, it helped me get to this decision or whatever, which is uh, anyway, when you talked about getting an email that said someone cited your paper, that's that's what I thought about. It's, it's really yeah. gratifying to know that you did something that if somebody doesn't take the time to tell you somehow, you'll never know the help that it was to someone. And it's, it's cool to know that something that can be out there and live for years and, and be a source of insight to someone. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, one, one thing, it, it, the fact that people are still citing that paper like 20 years later, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it really is. But I think as an aside, I think your average human has no idea how the, the way the academic citation system works and how important it is and how extensive it is, it's really, 
kind of strange and amazing and a pain in the butt all all at the same time. But uh, academic citations and the way that they're handled um, and and the idea of plagiarism or the fact of plagiarism out there it's it's kind of weird. It's it's interesting. It's a big deal. One of the things I've discovered about academia in general, as I've as I've dug into that idea a little bit here in the last few years, is that there's a much higher level of of rigor than I think the average person like myself appreciates. I mean, certainly plagiarism happens, but the the idea that you publish articles and there are peer reviews and there are citations and you know there all of the all of the potential negatives to the contrary, there there really is. Uh, people who are doing academic work take it seriously and and for the most part try to treat it with a lot of respect and preserve it and build on it and i i think that process is really really uh useful and exciting as far as i can tell i you know think back through the time i spent in universities and at every step of the way i can think of one or two professors who either just had the most tremendous sense of curiosity and desire to solve humanity's problems um, or the most, you know, the greatest desire to help others learn, you know, so those things together, there really were some great people there. There were a lot of people who loved getting paid as a professor and living that life and they just did whatever they could to check the right boxes and sure. A mass a pile of crappy papers, and you know, I got tenure. Okay. I have uh, three thoughts from all the things you just said about France that I that I want to. Well, there's they're sort of about France. They're tenuously related. <laughs> Your stuff about France. Uh, the first one is you talked about the the uh, obfuscation among computer scientists, and I'll, I apologize if I don't have that group exactly right. Uh, but that made me think about something that I've spent also quite a bit of time thinking about, which is, uh, I think if you would have talked to me 15 years ago or 20 years ago, you'd have found me to be fairly protectionist. In other words, the things I know, I somehow need to protect them. I, I need to make sure other people don't know them as much as I do. Something like that. Not not basis trading necessarily, but other maybe more specific things you know some spreadsheet i built or some tool that white commercial mm -hmm. has available or something and you feel like okay i need to i need to hold this i need to keep this there's the value here is this thing i know that other people don't know or this thing i have that other people don't have uh there's value there that i need to protect and i could not think more oppositely about that now than i did then I, i've come around to the idea that the, the greatest value to myself and other people and the industry at large and, and the thing that will give me the greatest chance of success, not only personally, but in whatever mission I'm trying to accomplish for the world or the, my customers or whatever, is give everything away. Give it all, you know, if I have something that can help someone and they're not a customer of white commercial, it doesn't matter. If this can be useful, let's help them. Let's give them the tool. Let's show them the idea. And, and uh, it, not only is it a much better way to live life, but I think it's maybe hard to quantify, but the, the return on just giving away everything you know seems to be tremendous. And that applies to 
business things and athletic things, you know, if you're, if you're competing against someone in a friend, playing basketball in the driveway with someone and, and you know things about basketball that they don't, the best way to make yourself better is to teach them everything you know. Teach them how to defend your, your best. If they can defend your best shot, you've got to come up with a new shot. You know, that's yep. uh, anyway, that obfuscation made me think about that. Uh, the other thing was, I guess, from your time in France, is there anything about French culture, either in general or the specific place that you were that you wish oh, would be the case in yeah. America? Uh, so, so when Americans think of France, they think of rude people and they think of Paris. Hmm. Well, what do Americans think of when they think of New York, <laughs> Chicago? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the, they think of rude people or Philadelphia for Pete's sake, rude people. Um, but the problem is, is they generalize that the rest of the country in France is that way. And that's not the case. I lived in the South of France where if, if you were open to, their their ways uh and wanted to try and wanted to be there and wanted to enjoy it they were so open and inviting and then they wanted you to try everything they wanted you to taste everything they wanted you to see everything uh they wanted you to experience everything because they're incredibly proud of their culture uh <laughs> the funniest debate that i always got into they're like why do you americans not learn how to speak french you know and because my first time over there, I didn't know how to speak French. I had never taken a French class. And they're like, everybody should speak French. <laughs> you know? And, and, and I was like, look, I get what you're saying. I took German in high school. And of course they were, they were like, that's retarded. But uh, I'm like, put yourself in my shoes. What language should you be learning? Probably Spanish. Uh, or for a while there may be thought Chinese. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you had to, all these things to pick. So, so they were so proud of that. But I loved the food. Uh, I loved the way that they that they lived. Um, you know, it's, it's a different pace. They still want to succeed. Um, you know, they they still care about uh, you know doing great things and solving big problems. But but also it's it's a little bit earthier, I suppose. I don't know. Um, I enjoyed meeting people who farmed in France and Belgium. I, I met more farmers in Belgium, uh, but uh, I really thought that was cool. You know, they're just like farmers here. It's just their fields are smaller, you know. Um, and I suppose they have a lot more you know, government stuff to deal with. But, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed my time over there. Love the food. Uh, and also, you know, how, how could I not enjoy being, I think I was 21, 22 years old, no attachments in a place where I had an unlimited rail pass that would take me anywhere in the EU, you know, and I went everywhere. That sounds pretty fun. That yeah. sounds pretty fun. Uh, yeah. You, in, in the last... 10 or 12 minutes of this conversation, you've, you've thrown out some pretty good vocabulary words and I'm not even going to include spectroscopy in that. I'm, you threw out obfuscate, vernacular, germane, and, and a few other, so, some I didn't understand. Uh, but in January, 2022, I said the word pejorative into a microphone and you, 
and you stopped me and asked what it meant. And ever since then, I've wondered, did you really not know or were you trying to make sure that I told everyone else? No, no, no. So I have heard the word pejorative and you explain it to me then and I've completely forgotten because it's not a word I use. But I've, I know I've heard that word, um, but I can never remember what it means. And, and, and I, yeah, I, I let, when I start talking about my academic stuff, I let loose some $5 words, but I, I promise you it is in the name of efficiency. You know, if I'm using a big word, it's because I don't want to have to say four words. Oh, I agree. I, I'm, no? I, I love vocabulary. So, I, I was just surprised, I guess, yeah. that the, the concept that I knew a word that you didn't know. <laughs> made, made, <laughs> I, I was surprised by that. I very much appreciate it. I want you to know, I don't think I've ever said anything, but I, I appreciate that you would <laughs> interject in the middle of the thing and say that. I've, I've, I'm glad you did it. So if you feel like you need to do it again sometime, don't hesitate. It's fun. You know, actually, you and, uh, oh, darn it, um, I, 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 I want to call him uh, Weevil Hog. Oh, yeah, but, Roger. Uh, Roger Gaddis. Yeah. Why can I not remember his real name? I can just remember his damn handle. Um, I, when I think of grammar now, I think of you guys. When I think of language, I think of you guys. Uh, so that's why occasionally you'll get a tweet from me if I see something funny about language. I, I think it's safe to say that I, maybe it's not, it feels safe to say that I feel about words the way you feel about near-infrared spectroscopy. <laughs> it's really, they're just really cool, so, and use, useful things. So uh, I could... I could talk for ever about all of the great things you could do with that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. But I, you know, I don't know. It, it, it puts me back to a, a time when, you know, when I was in grad school, especially before I was married, because once I was married, my mission was to get out hmm. uh, and, and start being a real husband. Um, but up until then, I, I just I wanted to learn everything, all of it, you know, except except like gender studies or whatever. I mean, I didn't even care about that. But computer science, yes. Business, yes. You know, um, whatever. If it was uh, science or math or those things, I wanted to learn it and understand it. And so, yeah, I just you just don't get me going. I won't. I, I've, uh, I don't, I think I was an okay student when I was of the age to be a student, but part of my unusual path through college had me finishing my last two years worth of credits over the course of about three years when I was 30 years old, starting when I was 30. And one of the things I recognized That'd about myself, hard. it's extremely hard. I will, I cannot recommend strongly enough not to do it that way. <laughs> be married and a father and have a full-time job and be, you know, I think I was trying to do nine or 12 credit hours at a time. I don't remember now it's long enough ago, but it was extraordinarily hard. And, uh, I, I really, really cannot uh, recommend it any less than I do, but all that aside, I was a much better student at 30 than I was the first two years of community college at 17. 
and I was, you know, I did fine. Oh, I had good yeah. grades and everything, but I, my, I wanted to learn so much at the age of 30. I really dug in and got every single thing I could out of every class I took. And it was, a, it oh, made yeah. me think if, if there was a way, I, I think I'm, I'm lucky in that what I get to do now is a little bit like being a student all the time, a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I, I've yeah. thought a lot, if, if I, if there was such a thing as a person who just learns for a living, that's, that's what I'm made for. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm very lucky that, that what I do is quite a bit of that is in there, but I, that's, that's, I've, I thought that a lot and, and going to college when I was much older than average helped me understand learning is its own, is its own benefit. Like, I, I don't think you need to learn things to a particular end. Just learning the stuff is its own, is its own benefit all by itself. So you and I are on the same page. There's, there. there's, there's so much beauty in uh, so many different things that you never get to see that beauty until you truly understand it. And you know, for, for me, it was in the physical sciences primarily. But I think you could probably take that statement and apply it to so many other things that you might study or learn about. Absolutely. You, you can you can absolutely apply it to literature. You could absolutely apply it to economics, which are two things I'm yeah. pretty interested in. I, I think you're right. And just about any subject. You certainly uh, yeah. can apply it to basis trading, and I do apply it to basis trading, and I think you do too all the time. Sometimes it's hard to – it doesn't feel like a learning experience because you're busy doing it, but it's. I, I think there's a, a pretty deep mine of things to understand about – well, we've talked about it relationships and economics and and derivatives and strategy and, and psychology everything. psychology yeah yeah everything man I, I wanted to talk about uh uh local involvement via mayorship and and the volunteer fire department but i were i think uh i think we could go on for hours more and and enjoy it but i don't know if anybody nobody wants would to listen to nobody that. would listen that long so i do have uh i do have some rapid fire questions to take us out okay what are you reading or listening to that you would recommend to anyone at all so right i i regularly listen to a podcast called macro voices and uh I don't, I don't really pay much as much attention to the host anymore uh, because I've, I've, I know what his biases are these days. But every once in a while, he'll have a guest that really, because I, I love macroeconomics and that's it's a macroeconomics podcast. So I like listening to that because occasionally there's a guest on there that kind of blows my mind. And, and sometimes it'll go well beyond macroeconomics. It'll touch on, you know, say engineering. Um, so I listen to that. Pretty, I, in general, I don't listen to many podcasts. And I hate to burst your bubble, but there's no way in holy heck I'm going to listen to this because I loathe the sound of my own voice. Um, there's no unless you can edit this down to about 30 seconds. I, you know. And I've, I've got to listen to it one more time <laughs> when I edit, and that'll be the last time for me as well. Yeah, and I'll, you know, I haven't listened to your other recordings yet, but I probably will. Uh, I just have to, when I get myself on, on a drive or something like that, I'll, I'll listen to it. Uh, I just recently read um, Oceans of Grain. And mm. 
there was some there was a lot of really interesting stuff there that to me you know there was a lot of connections with what's going on in Ukraine right now yep. and where how communism came about. Um, I got to be honest though, he could have accomplished all of that in about half as much space as he. It's so it's such a dense book, and I I, I did not get all the way through it yet. I all I do finish books. I very very rarely start a book that I don't finish unless it's just awful. But uh, I think I got the opposite impression of you. I, I felt like every sentence was just full of historical something. It didn't seem like there was a lot of waste. Now there was there was repetition, so maybe that's what you mean. Yes. So so there's two things. There's repetition, and then there's too much. Uh, bouncing back and forth and back and forth and back ah, and forth in yep, time. Yep. And it's it's hard for a person like me to stay on track and, and actually to just stay engaged. It, so it's just the repetition and um, the nonlinearity of it. But, you know, if you look, if you look between that, um, I mean, the, it, it really actually kind of opened my eyes to a lot of different things. I'm like, wow, yeah. so it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, and, I, it was it was a cool book. I'd, I'd recommend it to people. It's just the problem is I always read it at night before going to bed, and it always put me to sleep. I can only get about <laughs> six seven pages. I'm like oh, I gotta go to bed, you know. It, it's but, one of the most yeah, cool. One of the most densely packed books I've ever read. That's that's a fact. It, it's so, not a light. It's not a light read. It it is. There's a lot going on. And it, it'll wear you out pretty quick. That, that's my experience with it. Um. I read a book um, uh, a, a year or two ago called After. Um, when my mother-in-law passed away suddenly, um, I, I thought I would buy this book for my wife to read. But I read it first, and it was very profound for me. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a written from the standpoint of science. It's written by a hardcore scientist about researching near-death experiences. And it was tremendously uh, uplifting. Uh, he, there was no advocating for religion at all. There was no advocating for any particular religion, but by the same token, there was no advocating against religion or any particular religion. Uh, it was just from uh, this, this scientist who used the scientific method uh, to pick these apart and all the questions that science really can't answer and probably won't answer. And then all the, all the common threads of beauty in the near-death experiences. And then you see the, the, the tremendous weight of the similarities of all of these. And uh, you know, to me, it was inspiring. It it, uh, it it had a strong effect on me, and I guess if if a person wants to believe that there's more to consciousness, uh, and, and 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 that there is a have room for the idea of a spirit within you know our world, read the book. Uh, if you're if you're bent on believing that this is it, um, you know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it'll change your mind, but probably not. But I would recommend the book after anybody. It's 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 a little heavy on science and you know the scientific method in in moments. 
But to me, that just gave it some credibility. Okay. What is something you thought was true uh, about the grain business coming in that turned out to be entirely wrong? Big farmers don't work with uh, small companies. That's it. I mean, there's probably lots of other stuff, but that's that's the one that we're a little company. They don't want to work with us. It, you know, turns out that most of them really crave wanting to work with us. They're looking for a good reason. They're looking for an excuse. You know, they they're they're looking for a, a, a mathematical formula that forces them to have to work with companies like us because they're so tired of the BS that you know everybody wants in their pockets. You you have given a lot of people a lot of hope with that, with that statement. We should probably have another podcast just about that. Uh, what uh, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't running a family grain business right now? What do you think you'd be doing? I'd be a professor. Sure. Uh, I uh, uh, you know there's a chance that I would have gotten tired of it and either tried to do something in economics, politics, or maybe become a medical doctor. But, you know, the, the, the top choice would definitely be uh... Okay. I didn't lose you, did I? Nope. No. Okay. Um, one of the people I sell grain to was buzzing my phone. Okay. Uh, but it's uh, it's 4.30. Uh, he's probably wanting to tell me how many bushels of November corn I didn't deliver, and I already know. Okay. I have two more questions, and we'll, we'll 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 call it a day. Uh, maybe maybe we've already given this one away. What where where is somewhere you've been that you think everyone should go? Oh no, we haven't given it away. Okay. Um, I think I think everybody needs to go to Grand Turk Island. Okay. By the same token, though, I don't want everybody to go and ruin it. <laughs> this this may be the the exception that proves the rule of giving everything away that you know. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I I want to go to that island that you told me about a year or so ago, and I don't remember where it is, but I want to go there. Is it uh, the San Juan Islands there off the coast of Washington State? No, it was one no, of the most incredible places I've ever been. Direction. Well, we went to the Azores had, this summer. Do you, is it? Uh, yeah, it's the Azores. Yeah. Well, I've been to both. They're both incredible. Uh, if I had to go back to one tomorrow, I'd go to San Juan Island off of Washington State. It's oh. one of the most incredible places I've ever been. <laughs> we we were uh, my daughter, who was mm, probably 18, 17 or eighteen at the time. We're we're walking in this little cove, and there's you know, it's a kind of cliffy and rocky, but also there's a sand beach and there are these big fluffy trees and and uh, rocks in the water and the, the ocean just goes on forever. And she was standing there looking out at the water and I walked up behind her and she turned around and said, I feel like if mermaids exist, this is where they live. Wow. So that's that's, cool. that's uh, San Juan Island. All right, one more. What, what advice 
would you give 20-year-old Rob Cogdill from where you sit now? Don't be afraid. Uh, don't be afraid to take risks. Uh, you know, uh, uh, run the numbers, but don't be pessimistic. Don't be too pessimistic with those numbers. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure glad I met my wife. But uh, you know, if if someone hadn't have forced me her onto me. Uh, <laughs> I never would have had the guts to ask her out anyway. You know? So um, just take chances. You know? Enjoy it. You keep taking chances. You're not going to, you're going to have an interesting life. You know? That's a beautiful place to end. Rob, thanks a million cool. for doing this. I, I hope we you can, bet. hope we can do it again. I feel like we've got a six hour podcast in us. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Phil. All right. Uh, We need to do that in person. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Yep, take care. Bye.